Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series with Dr. Newfeld entitled, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, on Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Today we listen to a message called Salt and Light from our passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Years ago, I heard a story that I've not been able to verify, and so I'm assuming it's an urban legend, but it's an interesting story. The story goes that a math student had not been able to be in class and wondered what his homework was, and as he got to the empty classroom, he found an equation left on the board and assumed it was the homework. So he set out to solve the problem and found it exceptionally difficult. He finally did get it done, but it was by far the hardest math problem that he'd ever solved. Later, at least so the legend goes, his math professor informed him that the equation was not homework, but an example of an unsolvable math problem that no one had ever been able to solve. And of course, the point of the story is that when you don't know something's impossible, you might accomplish the impossible. Well, so much for a story used in countless motivation seminars, but I use this as an example of something of a very different kind of a problem. Many Christians think this to be impossible. I'm referring to the impact the gospel can make on the world and on nations and on individual cultures. I don't know what it is, but some of us have simply been programmed to believe that things are going to go from bad to worse in our country. And so we function with the mindset that nothing but nothing can prevent the downward slide towards a more secular, more immoral, and a more godless culture. We simply have the mentality that more and more people will reject the gospel and its implications. Now, against that mindset, I hear Jesus' proclamation in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm reading Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, when we read that, I think it's important to point out that Jesus did not give this teaching as an imperative or a command. It comes to us in the indicative. He's not telling us what we should strive to be, that is, salt and light. He is telling us that we are salt and light. Remember that in the early part of his sermon, Jesus is giving a character description of those who belong to his kingdom. Initially, he described the character of his disciples, but now he describes their impact. They are salt and light. Now, I think that the two metaphors, that of salt and light, although they are similar, actually speak of two different realities. So let's start with the first. You are the salt of the earth. You know, in the ancient world, salt would represent three different things. The first was purity, and this came about from the process of using seawater, then allowing it to evaporate, and then the salt remained. Hence, salt was what happened after you purified it of water. But I'm fairly certain that this is not what Jesus was driving at, for it would make no sense for him to say that you're the purity of the earth. Clearly, he's speaking about how the Christian influences the world, not what's left after the earth disappears. A second way salt was used was very much as it is used today, as a flavor. But again, it seems unlikely that Jesus was saying that his followers were the flavor of the earth. 
And so it seems likely that Jesus was saying that his followers were the preservative of the earth. You know, in the ancient world, there there was no refrigeration. Meat would be cured and stored in salt to prevent or to slow the process of decay. And so it seems to me that Jesus was giving an image of the world and of the unique role that believers were going to play in it. From Christ's perspective, the world is in decay. He's implying that there are destructive forces operating in all societies that will eventually pull down and destroy every one of them. But not only in individual societies, but in the world as a whole. It's moving towards dissolution, towards complete destruction. And in that sense, we're right. Things are moving from bad to worse. And this in opposition to an evolutionary view of human culture. Because we live in a day when technology and the sciences and medicine and inventions are progressing at an incredible pace, it might seem rather natural to assume that we are improving. After all, people say we've put an end to slavery, we're making strides in defeating racism and and sexism. Democracy is a form of government that forces leaders to listen to people. On and on the argument goes. I was receiving a haircut not long ago, and, and the barber was making just that point with me. He claimed that we had fewer wars than in past generations. He lauded the fact that there was no longer a military draft, which must mean that in spite of the problems that our world faces, we are more secure, we are more prosperous, and human beings are about to break into the sunlight of the more ideal world. While it is possible to be an eternal optimist, a little thought shows us a far different picture. We now have the technology to destroy all life in a matter of minutes. And just when a few nations on earth were determined to ensure that the nuclear club remains a contained group, that group is in fact growing, and among some of the most extremist nations on earth. The truth be told that the world has become a global village, and the world is now desperately divided. Add to that the worry of global pandemics that can't be contained. Add to that the reality that persecution against Christians and others is reaching unprecedented levels as increasing levels of hostility against those who hold different viewpoints is reaching new levels. We also have technology that allows governments to be more intrusive into the private lives of people. Religious intolerance is the major issue in the world today. There seems to be a boiling anger in the Middle East and also in the West as more and more people feel both threatened and angry. See, I could speak about growing economic indebtedness of nations, about the amount of mistrust people in the West are expressing about their traditional democracies, about an anger that the wealthy have too much power. But in truth, the world of today feels like a massive powder keg. It takes no imagination at all to believe that the earth is groaning and that it is in great decay. And Jesus, who announced his kingdom, a kingdom that will stand after all the kingdoms of this earth have fallen, also expresses his concern for the kingdoms of this world. After all, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And to a world in decay, Jesus looks at the subjects of his kingdom and says, You're the salt of the earth. Your presence in this world of decay will act as a preservative. Your presence is an act of the grace of God in a world that is headed for chaos and destruction. And now to the principal question. How do followers of Jesus, the citizens of his kingdom, act as salt in the world? Now, we must be honest. Jesus doesn't actually say how. 
But the rest of this sermon will indicate that the moral center of Christ's followers provides an alternative to that in the world. Let me suggest just one idea, and I, and I think this to be a very relevant topic in our world. I think it would be an understatement to say that we're witnessing in our culture the destruction of the family. The first stage of this destruction was the sexual revolution. Once the pill had been invented, many thought that anyone could engage in sexual relations without any consequences whatsoever. And if there were diseases, well, we'd solve that as well. Sex before marriage, sex after marriage, and and extramarital relations, polygamy, making a comeback, homosexuality, being blessed and normalized, the celebrating of new transsexual human beings. All of this is not now just a phenomenon, but it is the center of our culture as it happens today. Abortions, broken families, incurable sexual diseases, and more is all now destroying the building blocks for a stable human culture. Jesus, the great king of a kingdom that will never pass away, not only calls for stable sexual relations within marriage, he heaps utter scorn on lust. What our world considers natural, he considers a sin worthy of hell. And in the midst of a decaying culture, he establishes a new humanity which is not only countercultural, its presence witnesses hope of something other, something that answers the longing of the human soul. And of course, Jesus says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, what then? You know, some have suggested that what was then popularly called salt was in fact a white powder, perhaps it came from around the Dead Sea, which, while it contained sodium chloride, also contained other ingredients, since in those days there were no refineries. Of this dust, the sodium chloride was probably the most soluble component, and so it was easily washed out. What remains or the residue still looked like salt, and in popular language, it was still called salt, but it had lost its saltiness. It was thrown out. It was road dust. And and Jesus is saying that if his followers only looked like salt, but no longer were, the earth itself would be robbed of a great blessing. More when we come back. If we just take a look around us today, It's not hard to see the truth of Jesus' words. Our society is in a state of decay. That is why the ushering of his kingdom was and is so vital to the present and future of humanity. We're learning that to be a Christian means to be the salt of the earth. Through our words and actions, we model Christ and thus preserve a way of life that stands out from the rest of the world. Stay with us after the break as Dr. Neufeld helps us understand what it means to be the light in a dark world. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. Our efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. In this new year, perhaps you'd consider joining our ministry team as a monthly partner. Our monthly donor program, the 1119 Fellowship, provides sustainable support to all the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Consider how you might invest in these efforts as people of all ages and stages of life open their lives up to discover more about Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Your partnership in 2021 will provide the opportunity to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. 
To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship Program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. I want to move from the image of being salt to the image of being light. Here is before the statement says something about how Jesus viewed the world. He thought that the world was in darkness. Now, as before, we need some kind of an explanation. For most people living in the Western world, we tend to see light as a metaphor for education and darkness is a metaphor for ignorance. You know, two historic events in the Western history have reinforced this idea. The first occurring in the 15th and 16th century has been called the Renaissance. Uh, This was a period of time when the Greek classics were rediscovered, which led to the resurgence of learning in the Western world. The second historic period has been called the Enlightenment, and this has its roots in the 17th and 18th century with its emphasis on human reason influenced by philosophers and thinkers that set the stage for the scientific revolution and the viewing of nature as something that could be studied and then also could be explained and harnessed. You know, in both of these historic periods, the idea of light and of knowledge were closely associated, and so it's natural for us on this side of history to think Jesus might be saying something like that. Perhaps the influence of Christianity will bring universal literacy. I mean, that might even be cited. But our task is to understand what Jesus meant, not through the lens of our culture, but from his perspective. Another way of saying that would be to ask, how does the Bible view light and darkness? Well, one example is found in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. See, in that passage, it's clear that that darkness means moral evil and light means moral good. You know, a similar idea is found in Proverbs 2.13. There it speaks of those who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. That idea also corresponds very well with John 3.19-20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. See, the idea of darkness in the Bible is not a metaphor for ignorance, but for evil. It's also a metaphor for secrecy. See, evil or darkness hates the light because light exposes the evil or uncovers what evil things men and women do in darkness. See, that's a fitting description of how evil is maintained. Whether it's the action of criminals who seek to elude the law by remaining secret to the actions of whole nations. You know, ancient and modern historical records of nations show how often nations lie to their own people in order to involve them in wars. People can be manipulated and even be made to be outraged over something another nation has done, and sometimes it's a lie. Darkness has great advantage for evildoers. It hides the truth. But lest we only blame the rich and the powerful, darkness is a part of every human life. It was the Puritans who said that the problem with adultery was not just the adultery itself. It was the mountain of lies that people told in order to hide their sin. It has been said that every human being has skeletons in his or her closet, and I suppose it's true. All of us have moments that we would be happy not to discuss in a public forum, and so darkness becomes our friend. 
we become people of the lie. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I'm not saying that all things are for public consumption. There are a great deal of differences between light and voyeurism. There are all manner of things about the lives of other people that most of us have no right to know. But what I'm arguing is that sin, evil, and cover-ups go hand in hand, both on a national and on an individual level. And this phenomenon is so pervasive, Jesus can rightly define the entire world as living in darkness. Now, in the New Testament, light is associated with the gospel and a revelation of the knowledge of the glory of God. Not only is the world in darkness in the sense that it's lost in sin, but it is also lost in the sense that it does not know the one true God. Having lived so long in darkness, we have become blind to God. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The darkness that is being described then is the darkness of idolatry, that men and women have preferred the, the lies of idols to the truth of the one God. And so in the biblical perspective, this is a picture of our world. The world lost in sin in which lies are compounded upon lies to hide the true nature of our sin. But the most frightening of all are the lies we tell one another about God so that the knowledge of the only one being who can rescue us is hidden from our eyes. And so what does it mean to be the light of the world? I think the apostle Peter was reflecting on the words of Jesus when he wrote 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, I think that Jesus had evangelism in mind. The way to combat darkness is not to point out how dark things have become. It's to shine the light. And that light is the good news about Jesus, who is the light coming into the world. The only hope for a lost world of darkness is to bring light, to bring the good news. You know, when Jesus spoke of a city on a hill that could not be hidden, it might be that he was making a reference to an Old Testament passage found in Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 3. Let me read that passage. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his steps. In Isaiah's vision of the last days, Jerusalem would be ruled by the Messiah. And in that day, Jerusalem would also be raised up and it would become the center of attention for the whole earth. Now, of course, that only happens when the kingdom is consummated. That is, when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom over all the nations. But as we have seen, when Jesus came the first time, he announced the coming of the kingdom. He, in effect, inaugurates the kingdom. You know, through his ministry, the blind were given sight, the lame walked, demons were cast out, the dead were raised, and the gospel of the kingdom was being proclaimed. We live in a remarkable day. In our day, the kingdom has come in the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet the kingdoms of darkness still remain. And in this interim period, when the kingdom has come in a small fashion until the time when it is finally consummated at Christ's second coming, in this interim period, the servants of the king will serve as the light of the world. 
They will proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, the reality of the one true God, the God of Jacob, the only hope to escape a world of lies and sins and escape to a gospel filled with light. When Jesus told us that we are the light of the world, he meant that our preaching and our evangelism and our faithful witness would pierce through the darkness of lies and point people to the truth of the one true God in Christ, crucified for us, risen from the dead with a free offer to come and to be reconciled to him. See, I began this address by telling the fable of the math student who didn't know that it couldn't be done. But this, the reality that the followers of Jesus are both salt and light, tells us that the presence of the followers of Jesus in a world of decay and darkness is the only hope for this dying and black world. You, if you are a believer and a follower of Christ, are the light in this world because you proclaim Christ. You are the salt of the earth because the way in which you live your life provides an alternative to a world that is suffering from decay. Rejoice in that which God has given you. Accept the role that Christ has given you and announce the truth of Christ in a broken and fallen world. John, in our culture today, perhaps uh, in Canada, around the world, there'll be many that say maybe the world is better off without the church. But give me a sense, if that was true, how would the world be worse off? You know, um, it's interesting because you and I have both been in countries, Ben, where there is hardly a Christian presence at all. And in most of those cases, um, life becomes cheap. And it's amazing how the poor are treated in many countries where there's no gospel witness. They're simply thrown aside and neglected. I mean, the record of the church has been uh, not a perfect record, but we do know that wherever the gospel has gone, uh, there has been something that uh, missiologists call redemption and lift. That is, when a sizable part of the a population comes to Christ, there are economic benefits that are felt. There is education for, um, for, for everyone. Uh, the treatment of women changes dramatically as they are treated now as our full equals in Christ. Um, we can even look at how the Christian faith has uh, impacted the arts and, and other parts of culture. Uh, it seems like the gospel provides a kind of a lift to every part of culture. And I know that's not a story that's often told, but Ben, as I'm talking to you, I mean, I'm thinking about your involvement in the Salvation Army and what the gospel has meant for countless people who are on the, the bottom side of life. I think that's an example of what the church does everywhere she goes. She really is salt and light. Don't miss the program tomorrow as we'll continue to unpack the Beatitudes with Dr. John Newfeld, discussing the topic of genuine righteousness. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Last year, our team began to examine how effectively Back to the Bible Canada was fulfilling its mission of Bible teaching. One outcome of those conversations was a new statement that better reflected our core calling, Bible teaching you can trust. Another outcome was an increased effort to ensure the maximum number of people were being reached, gaining a better understanding of God, the Bible, and growing in their walk with Jesus. Thank you for the role your prayers and support play in making this ministry possible. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.